On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Greg Allison about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We cover topics like who is he? How does he relate in the Trinity? Is the Holy Spirit just the junior God? Where is he in the Old Testament? What is this difference between filling and indwelling? Or is that really a difference? And we cover other topics like those. If you have thoughts about the episode in general or ideas or requests for the show, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com, or you can find us online at thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to our new friend, Dr. Greg Allison. And we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I think there's been several phrases uttered over the recent decades that have said the Holy Spirit is the forgotten doctrine or the forgotten God of some sort. So I, I'm really looking forward to talking to him about this because he's got a book with Andreas Kostenberger on the Holy Spirit. And it's just called the Holy Spirit. So if you Google Greg Allison and the Holy Spirit, it should come up. I mean, I imagine everybody's on Amazon or whatever. So it's it's pretty easy to find stuff. So go find that book. We commend that to you. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about this. So Dr. Allison, before we get started, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with who you are, you know, we have a lot of varied listeners. We have people like, I mean, we, me and Brandon have our family members who listen. Uh, we've got pastors, we've got seminary students, and we've got people who are interested in various things. So there's some people who are more into the historical side of theology, some are more into the philosophical side. So I'd imagine not everybody knows who you are. So give us 30 to 60 seconds, just a little bit of background, and then what got you interested in the topic of the Holy Spirit? Why, why devote resources to writing a book? Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure being with you, uh, Jordan and Brandon. Uh, thanks for the invitation. And uh, I'm a professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Nora, for 44 years. We've got three adult kids and 10 grandkids. I got interested in the topic of the Holy Spirit as a freshman at the university. Uh, I was struggling to know how to live in a way that would please Christ. I went to a meeting of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And the breakout session that I attended was entitled, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? I had no idea what that question meant. I had barely become a believer. I was struggling in my faith. But I found out that day that one of the things I understood was that the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with living in ways that will please Christ. And so that began my pilgrimage, if you will, my uh, journey towards a deeper study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit and trying to rely upon him and his presence and power every day. All right. Well, Dr. Allison, thanks again for, for giving us some of your time. I guess we could just jump right in. So um, maybe just give us a brief introduction to the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the, the Holy Spirit and, and how does he relate in the doctrine of the Trinity? So this is the uh, doctrine about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we build on a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit that we construct from all the passages about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then using that biblical theology, we develop 
the Holy Spirit's uh, deity and divine personhood, his intra-Trinitarian relations, that his, his relations with the Father and the Son, his eternal procession from the Father and the Son, including his mission to the world, his role in creation and in providence in sustaining the universe that he created, his inspiration of scripture and his illumination of scripture, uh, his presence and empowerment in the incarnate son. Jesus, the God-man, the son was filled without measure by the Holy Spirit. We look at his works in applying salvation to our lives, regeneration, union with Christ, things like that. We look at his ministries in the church and then his perfecting of creation ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a broad overview of what pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit covers. So help me think through how I should think of him as a person, because I think for most people, it seems more intuitive to think, okay, the father, I, you know, I naturally I have an idea of who, what a father is like, or, or the son who becomes incarnate. You know, you've got all these, you know, Jesus is eating and drinking, but the spirit seems to get less uh, airtime. And it's maybe it's because it partly just because it's confusing. Like, what does it mean that he's, is it just like, he's like the wind or is he a junior God or, or what's going on here? Because I think it's very difficult to understand. I mean, I, I can't help but think of, you know, movies. I haven't seen this, but I'm pretty sure in the shack, the Holy Spirit's like a, a like OCD Asian woman. So <laughs> how, how do we think of him as a person? That's not the way to think about the Holy Spirit, for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I, I want my listeners to think back uh, at a time in their church uh, when a uh, new believer came forward to be baptized, right? And, and so there's the horse trough or there's that ba ba baptismal font, right? And and uh, we baptized that woman, that man, that new believer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jordan, as you just mentioned, we understand the personhood of the Father. He's a divine person. We understand the personhood of the Son. He's a divine person. Because of that coordinate relationship with the Father and the Son, we need to understand the Holy Spirit as a divine person as well. I, I, I ask my listeners here, our, our audience, to wean themselves away from the, the expression Holy Ghost, hmm. because ghost does not help us understand the personhood of the Holy Spirit. When I hear ghost, I think of Casper. Yeah. <laughs> when I hear ghost, I, hear, I, I think of spooks, you know, paranormal stuff these energy fields and all like that, that's not helpful at all. And, and so the Bible over and over again affirms that the Spirit teaches, he prays, he bears witness, he convicts, right? He, these are personal activities. Uh, and, and so he's not a force, he's not an energy field, he's not a power. Is he powerful? Absolutely. Is he influential? Absolutely. But he's not an inanimate, ethereal thing. He is a divine person worthy of our worship, our obedience, mm -hmm. our trust, and so forth. Before we go any further, I, I just do want to be crystal clear that we do not uh, endorse the shack on this podcast. So I don't want Jordan <laughs> to get us in any you, trouble. Hey, I even said I didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think when we think the Holy Spirit and for a good reason, you know, most, most of the time we think new Testament, we think, you know, post Pentecost. Right. So, um, but 
we, we do want to affirm that, that the Holy Spirit was doing a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. So maybe help us help us to see what his role or roles were uh, in the Old Testament uh, and during under the Old Covenant, I guess I should say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God. The very second verse of our Bible mm-hmm. introduces us to the Spirit of God who plays a very prominent role in creation. So he comes on the scene in the second verse of the Bible. So he has a very important role in creation, uh, also in the flood, uh, the, the, the role of judgment. Primarily in the Old Testament, we find the Holy Spirit coming upon leaders in Israel. Mm-hmm. He comes upon the judges. So they become empowered to be military leaders who conquer uh, the Jewish enemies, the, the people of Israel's enemies. And the Holy Spirit would come upon the kings and equip them for ruling the people of Israel. And the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets so they would speak the very words of God. The, the, the Spirit would come upon these leaders of Israel. It does not mean that the Spirit was inactive among the common people. We can't imagine anyone in the people of Israel being saved and purified and sanctified and loving the Lord and loving his word and worshiping apart from the Holy Spirit, there's just not much data, not much information in the Old Testament about that, mostly focusing on the leaders. And then finally, there's this uh, anticipatory theme that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, There's an anticipation that the Old Covenant would give way to a new covenant. This new covenant would feature prominently a spirit-anointed Messiah or suffering servant who would also be associated with a fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Jeremiah 31, gone is the old covenant, coming a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I will cleanse you with water, I'll remove your idolatry, I'll give you a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey. Joel chapter 2, the, the God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, men and women, young and old, slave and free, Jews and Gentiles, unprecedented, fresh, new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is an anticipatory theme, an expectation that goes through the prophetic areas, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So for d- during during the Old Testament period, uh, when we think about salvation, so I think um, it's easier for me. I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to speak for anybody else. Uh, it's it's easier for me to to understand that yeah, the Holy Spirit has to give new life. I mean, he you know if we're spiritually dead, he has to regenerate us, right? But but the the question for me comes when when we talk about not so much the regeneration but the actual indwelling of the holy spirit in old testament versus new so you mentioned all of those passages those prophecies you know in Joel about the pouring out of the spirit now is the indwelling of the holy spirit in the old testament versus the new testament would you say that the difference is is quantitative or would you say that there's just there's something qualitatively different going on in the new testament with um the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost. Yeah, I think there's a quantitative and qualitative difference, okay. right? So the Holy Spirit under the old covenant would come upon people, um, but rarely is it mentioned that he would indwell people, mm-hmm. right? And in John 14, John, Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He assures them, 
oh, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. Right. Yeah. And John 7, 37, 35 to 37, uh, Jesus talks about rivers of living water flowing out of his believers, uh, the believers hearts. This he said about the Holy Spirit who is still to come. The day of Pentecost, the Father and the Son pour out the Holy Spirit and the uh, disciples, the apostles, the 120, right, are filled with the Holy Spirit. So there is a, a major extensive work of the Holy Spirit and a greater intensive work of the Holy Spirit such that we're indwelt by the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit, not just him coming upon us, mm -hmm. but he dwells in us, thereby uh, rendering us the temple of the Holy Spirit. So uh, how how would your view differ from someone like Sinclair Ferguson? So I think Sinclair Ferguson's got his book on the Holy Spirit. And in there, he, I guess, says the difference between the Old and New Testament is not that the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell, but there's, I guess, different qualitative elements that are added or, or unique in the New versus the Old. There's, I guess, more, maybe more power to you know, walk in virtue and those types of things. Whereas the Old Testament, you they had to be indwelled to be a believer, I guess is the reason that he would say you have to be indwelled. What, what, what's your take on that? I love Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, oh. When I teach Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I require my students to read his book, but I disagree with him. He's hmm. Reformed Presbyterian. He has a very strong sense of continuity mm -hmm. between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One covenant of grace, yeah. two administrations, the new covenant, in what way is it new? It's more like a renewal of yeah. the old covenant, right? But there's a lot of continuity, and that's not the way I read and put the Bible together. I, I think there's a qualitative and qualitative, and qualitative uh, difference here, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. I would go to, so far as to say, I doubt that Old Covenant believers were regenerated in the same sense that we are. Mm -hmm. Were they moved by the Spirit to repent of their sins and believe and to worship and to love God? Absolutely. But my understanding of regeneration is the removal of an old nature, the impartation of a new nature. Get rid of that old identity, put in the new identity. I think that's a new covenant reality, as Jesus instructed Nicodemus. In addition to that, we're regenerated. We're also indwelt. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just disagree with uh, Dr. Ferguson in seeing that as a continuity piece with the Old Covenant. I disagree with yeah. that. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the text in John are definitely difficult to interpret from Sinclair's position. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I feel the sense of how could someone be a Christian without the indwelling Holy Spirit? I, it just... It doesn't make sense in my head how that makes sense. So how, right. how do you go about that? They, they can't they can't be Christians without mm -hmm. regeneration and indwelling. They could believe they could, in my estimation, be old covenant followers of Yahweh with okay. regeneration. Not like ours. OK, regeneration 1.0. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, something like that. Uh but I, I think the emphasis in the uh, Old Testament is the Spirit coming upon people. Yeah. On, I mean, on the 70 elders with Moses. They're yeah. not indwelt. He comes upon them and they prophesy. Saul gets dirty, right, in the dirt, and he's prophesying as the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Samson is killing a lion, and he's 
destroying 30 people and he's wiping out a thousand other people through the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Uh, so Dr. Ferguson and I, and I love his book, we just yeah. have a different approach to the continuity and discontinuity between the old and the new covenants. That's good. So may, this, I think, leads right into a, a question that I have just about the difference between filling and indwelling. So in the book of Acts, it seems that we have a lot of different terminology for what the Holy Spirit is doing. Sometimes he's filling somebody, sometimes he's indwelling somebody. And it seems maybe Sinclair's position would be able to say, well, indwelling is something that is the same across, and it's the filling that are the examples of these unique temporary happenings. Is that a is that a good distinction? Is that a right distinction? Or what's the Holy Spirit doing when he's filling people in the new versus filling people in the old? So I think three senses of the filling with the Spirit in the New Testament. In um, Acts 1, 4 to 5, Jesus promises his disciples that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from when he's told them. Mm -hmm. He uses the expression baptism with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 4, sorry, Acts 2, 4, this is the fulfillment on the day of Pentecost, Luke writes, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So, so filling with the Spirit, number one, can also mean baptism with the Holy Spirit. Christ pours out the Holy Spirit. We're inundated with the Spirit. We're incorporated into his body. That's sense number one. In Acts 4, 8 and Acts 4, 31, in the first case, Peter is addressing the Sanhedrin. In the second case, Acts 4.31, the believers are asking to be empowered to boldly preach the gospel. Luke records, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right, addressed the Sanhedrin. The people who prayed were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the gospel boldly. So filling with the Spirit, sense number two, can be an unction, an anointing by the Spirit for a particular task, announcing the gospel, counseling well, teaching a Bible study preaching the word, whatever it might be. So we, as uh, as Christians engaged in ministry, we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us for a particular task. That's the second yeah. notion. Third notion, we find in Acts 6, 3, and 6, descriptors of the uh, candidates for uh, the new deacons, for these deacons, right? Uh, they must be men uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Third sense here. If I were to describe Philip, uh, Philip's life um, or Stephen's life, I would say these are two men filled with the Holy Spirit. The general tenor of their life is that they are men who are submitting, yielding to the Holy Spirit. They're not sinless. They fall. They, they commit errors. They commit sin. Yeah. But overall, we would describe them, they're men filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the third sense. That's my take on the filling of the Spirit in uh, the New Testament. Jordan, do you have a follow-up on that? No, you you can dig into that if you want, or you can go a different direction. I don't care. <laughs> so in, in the New Covenant, um, I, I guess it's hard to really pin down what we would say is the Spirit's like chief work or or his his main role. Um, so, so you don't have to give us one, but uh, maybe you know, two or three if you'd like, or just one. Um, what do you think is, is what, what is the Spirit doing to um, followers of Christ under the new covenant? I would say there are three particular ministries or works of the Holy Spirit, three general particular uh, general things, but that are peculiar, particular to the Holy Spirit. The first one is speaking. 
So in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit falls on people, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on people, when he comes upon people, more often than not, they speak, they praise, they preach, they pray, they prophesy. And so that continues in the New Testament. Uh, The Holy Spirit emboldens Peter. He emboldens the early church to preach the gospel. There's prophecies going on. And ultimately, right, the the Holy Spirit is the one responsible for our book, for the Bible, right? He's the one who inspired, moved the biblical authors along as they spoke from God. And so, right, his speech is written down for us in the Bible, in Scripture. So he's he's the one whose first ministry here is then speaking. Uh, Secondly, uh, he's responsible for the application of salvation, right? The Son, in his mission, accomplished salvation. The Spirit, in his mission, applies it, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, regenerating people, prompting repentance, prompting faith. Justification is also by the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Adoption by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, our sanctification by the Spirit, our assurance of salvation. The Holy Spirit speaks, bears witness with our spirit. We're truly children of God. Ultimately, our resurrection, our glorification is going to be by the Spirit. So a second major uh, area would be application of salvation. Thirdly, and going back to uh, Jordan's point about indwelling, a third particular ministry of the Holy Spirit is he indwells us, thereby rendering the presence of the triune God in our lives and in the church. So the Spirit indwells us. He indwells our church. And we not only get the Holy Spirit, but he brings the Father and the Son with him. Mm -hmm. So we're Trinitarian people, the Holy Spirit bringing the Father and the Son to make their homes. They're they're dwelling with us and also in our church. We're the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the people of God. So in the last, um, I guess, 120 years or so, Pentecostalism has uh, become a, a huge movement. And um, I think for some of us who are not Pentecostals, um, we, we, oh, maybe we just, we get scared to talk about the Holy Spirit because we think, especially, and I guess it depends on what context you're in. If it's, um, if you have, a, you know, a, a large Pentecostal presence around your, or, or whatever it may be, but we're scared to talk about the Spirit um, because of maybe some excesses that have come from from that movement and what what appears to be, I don't want to reach too far here, a close relationship, not always, but what seems to be a close relationship with a more prosperity teaching. Um, so I think that that's, for, for evangelicals, we, we kind of stay at an arm's length when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So um, number one, I, I guess my question is, should we... Um, try to talk to Pentecostals about the Holy Spirit, or are, are we just talking about, are, are, are our, is our vocabulary so different? Are we using different dictionaries when we're talking about the Spirit and when a Pentecostal is talking about the Spirit that, like, first of all, we got to get on the same page about what we mean? Or I, I guess my question is, how, how do we talk to them about the role of the Holy Spirit and have productive conversations? Yeah, that's a great question. We should not be fearful of our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters, right? Um, And so engaging in dialogue, why are we fearful of the Holy Spirit? And we say, okay, we'll give them the Holy Spirit. We'll keep the Bible. (laughs) Why do they say when I (laughs) preach in their churches, gosh, I wish we had more Bible. We got a lot of Holy Spirit. What what if we (laughs) dialogue together and maybe 
uh, come up with some balance, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That would be wonderful because we need both the word of God and the spirit of God. And yeah. so let, let's, so dialogue, read someone like uh, J. Rodman Williams, uh, his uh, Pentecostal theology. He's an exceptionally good Pentecostal theologian uh, who's written uh, a, a wonderful uh, three volume series uh, of systematic theology. I disagree with some of his, uh, his interpretations and conclusions, but uh, he's not a man who is reading tea leaves to try and figure out the guidance of the spirit. He's very much rooted and grounded in scripture. We can mm-hmm. disagree with him, but I think we need to see that responsible Pentecostal and charismatic leaders and pastors, yeah. theologians, they're very deeply rooted in scripture and good theology. So let's have dialogues with them. Yeah, that's good. So all, along this line, Speaking of the Spirit's work in the New the New Testament, I mean, you've got First Corinthians, I guess, thirteen and fourteen, and other texts that talk about these particular unique gifts, such as tongues and prophecy. And I would venture to say that most of our listeners are probably cessationists when it comes to these particular gifts, saying that they were used for a particular time and then they ceased to function. What is your take on, on these gifts? Do do they continue? Because honestly, you know, if I just read the text, it seems when I read 1 Corinthians 13 that it says that these gifts will cease when the perfect comes. And naturally, I don't think the perfect is already here yet. So it would seem natural to infer that they continue on. But my practical experience is that they aren't here. And the way I understand prophecy, I don't see anyone prophesying. It seems like prophecy has to be 100% certainty and accurate. accurate. Uh, or else it's not really prophecy. So help me think through this issue. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in there, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so there are two positions. Cessationism, as you mentioned, uh, most of the spiritual gifts listed for us in the New Testament continue, but there are seven that the Spirit has ceased to distribute. Hmm. They are prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, miracles, and healings. Because these serve the purpose of uh, rendering legitimate, of of bearing witness to the legitimacy of the gospel message and gospel messengers, once that uh, affirmation, that confirmation has been accomplished, the Holy Spirit ceased giving them, right? So the Spirit does not give those gifts anymore. We should not expect them to be operative in our church. The other position is called continuationism. Yes, the gifts of teaching and administration and leading, of course, like cessationists believe, these gifts continue to be distributed by the Holy Spirit, but also those seven sign or miraculous gifts, they also continue to be distributed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, miracles and healings. The Spirit continues to give those gifts. And so cessationism, the old form of cessationism, used to uh, refer to 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, that is, when the canon of Scripture is closed, when further revelation is ceased, also these revelatory gifts have ceased. Most cessationists have moved away from that because they agree with you. The perfect doesn't talk about the New Testament. It doesn't refer to the end of divine revelation, the New Testament. It's referring to the return of Jesus Christ. As Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, 
right? He, he says these gifts will continue until Christ's return. And so uh, most cessationists have, have left that. They would focus more on 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of the apostles, signs, miracles, and wonders. There seems to be a concentration of these sign gifts or miraculous gifts among the apostles. When the apostles disappear, so also the Spirit ceased to give these gifts. I'm a continuationist. I'm not persuaded by cessationist arguments. I'm a continuationist, but I also stand against excesses that we see in uh, Pentecostal and charismatic circles. I insist that if we're continuationists, we must use these gifts according to explicit biblical instructions that we find, as you mentioned, in 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy and speaking in tongues and so forth and so on. So that's my view. Got it. So on this, it seems that a lot of the times cessationist main argument is just empirical. Look, I don't see these anymore. Look at the way the New Testament goes. You've got it in just these few places. If it was such an important thing, you'd think it would still be occurring and be a prominent factor in the New Testament writings. What would you say in response to that? So uh, Stanley Burgess in the Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Theology has several uh, long and very important articles tracing the continuation of these sign or miraculous gifts throughout church history. So the notion that these ceased after the apostolic period uh, would probably need further investigation, right? I, I would think would not be a correct view. And then today, uh, I would say if we would leave, uh, go outside the uh, United States and see where the pioneering missionary work is going, is, is moving ahead, more often than not, we're going to see Pentecostal and charismatic churches that are, that are experiencing these things. And, and uh, it's very hard to say either these gifts are the result of peer pressure or kind of self-deception, or we're still, they're demonically given. Uh, I would say, let's woo, let's not go there at all, right? <laughs> we'll be very cautious. So are, that are reminds you? me of a position that Jonathan Pennington uh, mentioned. I don't know. I don't think he's written anything on this, but I, I was in, I think it was either New Testament or Matthew or something, and he was talking about his view. He's basically, uh, I guess it's a unique version of continuationism where the gifts are always, they, they are still operative, but they're only operative in those unique pioneering locations where the gospel is going for the first time, uh, where it needs unique, uh, I guess, I don't know, confirmations type of thing. And he, so he's saying like in America, you don't have these because the gospel is already here. It's established. Is, is Do you have a limited understanding of a cessationism and say that's a good idea or a bad idea? That sounds just before. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. that, that, that sounds like I ran across. I, I don't even remember what it was. It was on a website. It was on the internet um, years ago. A view that was described as concentric cessationism, and it was ascribed to. I don't remember which reformer. It was one of the well-known reformers, and it was basically that same idea that that these the continuing of these gifts. It's kind of like a ripple effect. So, like if you threw a rock in a pond, like if the 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 farther you go out from the rock, which is like the presence of a New Testament church, like when you get out to the to the fringes where the gospel is just now, you know, 
um, be, being preached, that's where you're going to see the gifts continue. But at the center of that circle, um, you know, the closer you get to an established New Testament church where there is a gospel presence, you're going to see them fade away. Um, so I think that's, is, Jordan, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, um, so help me here. What do I say to my friend Sam Storms? Yeah. What do I say to my friend C.J. Mahaney, who are not in pioneering missionary context? Yeah. They're not on the way out concentric circles, but they have ministry time every week in which there's prophetic activity, interpretation of speaking in tongues, uh, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. And they're going, man, it's not out there. It's in my church. Yeah. And Sam mm-hmm. might say, is the reason that my church, your church, our church, right, is the reason that we're not experiencing these gifts because we're quenching the spirit? Ouch. Woo. We don't want that question to be asked, right? Are we the ones who are quenching the spirit and, and not welcoming his gifts? And therefore, the spirit is saying, have it your way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, but I suppose the 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 Pentecostal who who is doing his thing in his church that we would consider in excess, he could say the same thing, right? He could say, "Well, you know, this is going on in my church, so you know, who, who are you to tell me that this isn't the real thing?" So I guess that's just kind of begging the question, right? To say, "Well, this this experience is happening in our church, so it must be the real thing." We we wouldn't, well, at least I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept that with what what I see on, you know. Um, Benny Hinn stage or, or whatever else, you know, just to use that, an obvious example that's that's out there sure. that I know all of us are probably going to agree on. So I, I just maybe that was I, I. So if if something is happening in a church, um, is that reason enough for us to just say, okay, well, that is what is being described in in the New Testament, or are you just saying that should give us reason to pause and and maybe reevaluate why we're not seeing this happen in our church? Or maybe going back to your concentric circle thing, right? If if Dr. Pennington's view has been represented rightly here, mm-hmm. so it, it's uh, these gifts are operative in pioneering areas, and and uh, as we would expect them to do, because they're confirming the gospel and its messengers. I would say, okay, that's great, but then, but do they necessarily have to be out there? When in Sam's church and C.J.'s Mahaney's church, they're actually operative according to biblical instructions. Mm-hmm. They're building up for the edification of the church. There's one or there's two or three speaking in tongues with interpretation. There's two or three giving prophecies with evaluation. It looks very biblically regulated. Yeah. So in addition to being out there, could it also be in here, right, within, and maybe I just I'm asking the question to Sam Wood. Uh, maybe we don't see it in Sojourn Church because we're not open to it. Yeah, it's just a question. It, no, so, that's a good question because I've always—I mean, I used—I wrestled with this mightily. I think back in college, and I never really came to a resolution, and I just kind of moved on. And I, I think I—I've always been in cessationist churches, so that's just the easy thing to do. Um, and it has always bothered me that others that I view as this person's solid. So it's not just this person's like, I think you're wild on like everything in theology. So I would expect you to have crazy stuff go on. There are mm-hmm. people who I respect. And I genuinely think we agree on 98% of stuff. And yet you affirm this and see this happening in your church. And it's really hard for me to discredit personal experience like that. Um, so 
I, I genuinely have wrestled with that. But at the same time, like if these are true, genuine gifts, why aren't they happening more in other churches? And you said maybe just because we're just not open to it. And I wonder, is that a right way to think about the Holy Spirit's work? Is he going to be turned off from doing something in my church because we're all against it? I, what should I think so, about that? So what? So First Thessalonians 5.19, uh, don't quench the Spirit, don't despise prophecy yeah so if we are despising prophecy uh why would the spirit who's grieved by that who's quenched by that why would he continue is he going to force his way yeah um is... or or uh maybe it's going on in our churches we just don't have a label for it hmm. right so so when my colleague bruce ware uh is trying to decide this is two decades ago maybe he's at trinity evangelical divinity school uh He's been asked by Dr. Moeller to come to Southern Seminary and teach. He's been praying and fasting and talking to people about it and all like that. And Bruce, uh, the, the timeline is kind of going on. He, Dr. Moeller wants an answer from him. And, and Bruce is ready on a Saturday to say, uh, on Monday, Dr. Moeller, I'm not going to come because I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me. He goes to church on Sunday. A woman who knows nothing about him or nothing about his situation goes up to him and says, oh, oh Dr. Ware, I'm I'm. I'm sorry. I'm I'm saddened by the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you away from Trinity, and and to another seminary. And and Monday morning or Tuesday morning, Doctor Ware calls up Doctor Muller and says, "I'm coming." Mm-hmm. What, so you call that prophecy? You call that guidance? You call that word of knowledge? Yeah. Word of yeah? Wisdom? I guess I guess that's where there's a fuzzy line between like providence you know and and then like how we understand prophecy so that i guess my my question to follow up on that would be so like in for instance the the uh the first thessalonians passage you mentioned do you understand prophecy there to be more like i'm not trying to sound flippant but like um you know i've got a word from the lord for you kind of thing or or like um you know old testament style like if this does not come true you know, this is a false prophet kind of thing. Like, is New Testament prophecy categorically different from Old Testament, in your opinion? So I've been deeply influenced by a chapter that appeared in a Feshrift, the celebratory volume for Vern Poitras. And and it's about uh, two types of prophecy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hmm. So, so the author talks about capital P prophecy and small p prophecy. In the Old Testament, there's clearly capital P prophecy that becomes thus says the Lord yeah. and and that is some of it's written down becomes scripture there's also small P prophecy the 70 elders with Moses the two who are outside the camp Saul getting dirty he's prophesying uh, this is probably not thus says the Lord nobody even remembers that stuff so small P prophecy it could be direction it could be guidance or whatever same thing in the New Testament there's capital P prophecy right there's the prophets and the apostles right? So there's writing of scripture, no uh, prophecy of scripture, Second Peter talks about. And there's also small p prophecy. There's the four prophetesses, the daughters of uh, Philip, right? We, we don't know anything about them. I don't think they were going around saying, thus says the Lord. Uh, yeah. But And then 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, a prophecy uh, is called revelation, and it's for the edification of the church. It could be something like, uh, I sense from the Lord that he wants us to go ahead and build a an addition that would become an educational wing on our church. And, 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 and a prophet or a prophetess says this, 
there's an evaluation. The elders confer. They say, you know what? We bless the Lord. We bless this person who has given us this word because it's confirmed what we've been praying about and fasting about and planning about. We need more space for our kids. And it just, we sense from the Lord, his push through this prophetic word, go for it. Mm -hmm. It's to build up the church. That small p prophecy is only for that church. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to pay attention to it. But that church would say, we bless the Lord because he's confirmed what we've been suspecting all along. That so in the, the way it operates. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that like, um, so I guess you're saying that like how we like capital A apostle is no yep. more, but lowercase apostle still still with us, that capital P prophecy is no more but then lowercase p is still active. That's right? Exactly. exactly. What's a lowercase a apostle? I mean, I mean, I just, I'm not familiar. You know, it would be people, you know, some some are, are called, uh, they, they're engaged in apostolic ministry. They're church planters. They're church network leaders, right? They're out on the pioneer edge. They've um, got the great vision and direction and guidance. they got great faith. They're moving people ahead. Some people call that an apostolic ministry. So would right? that would, would somebody like Junia in Romans sixteen be in that? Could be, yeah, could be, yeah. Okay. Um, I I had a number of years ago. I had a conversation with Mark Driscoll when when he was still at Mars Hill, and he was considering using the uh, the idea of apostolic ministry to refer to himself. And I said, Mark, I, I get it. There can be small a apostles. And, and maybe you're doing that, that small a apostolic work. But if you use that term, man, I guarantee you uh, there's going to be a lot of people who misunderstand it. And he oh, backed yeah. away from using yeah. it. He backed away from using it. <laughs> yeah. Knowing him, he would have been tarred and feathered. Oh, man. Been tarred and feathered. It would have been a disaster, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so people like that, you know, um, uh, I, could, could you call them apostolic? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then we've got the uh, fivefold ministry from Ephesians 4. You know, there's a big yeah. emphasis on that. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're, they're not apostles a la Peter and Paul, but they're small a apostles leading the charge in new areas, missionaries, things like that. Maybe. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I haven't thought about these issues in a long time, so this has been a lot of fun thinking about it. Because this is a blast, isn't it? And there are so many unique and interesting intricacies with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that I don't know. I just they don't get a lot of airtime. I feel like, at least in the circles I run in, it's been heavy on doctrine of God um, and discussions on Trinity and and all those things. I just haven't seen a lot of discussions on this, so this is a lot of fun to think about interesting. this. When, when I ask my theology classes to join me for lunch, we eat, and then I say, hey, anything, no holds barred, yeah. talk about anything. The number one question, let's talk about spiritual gifts. Hmm. Number two question, what do you think about the drinking policy? Right? But the first one is always, can we talk about spiritual gifts? Because we just, we feel uncomfortable about it. We know yeah. the excesses and we know the abuses. And all of us condemn that stuff. But can we at least have dialogue, civil yeah. conversation, say that there's different views and we're brothers and sisters and that's good. Let's let's see if we can further the conversation. Yeah. That's right. Amen. I like that. That's good. Yeah, that's that's really good. So maybe to close up, give us some other resources that, you know, people want to think more about spiritual gifts or people want to think more just like theology proper about the person of the Holy Spirit. 
I, I know we've got your book that we re- recommend. Are there any others that are specifics to these issues that we should be gravitating towards and getting copies of? So I think just on the spiritual gifts thing, a couple years ago, my colleague Tom Schreiner came out with a book with B&H uh, on, on spiritual gifts from a cessationist point of view. I think it's the best exposition of the cessationist view. It's golden. Two weeks ago, Sam Storms came out with a book, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a Comprehensive Guide. And it's, I think, going to be the best uh, exposition of the continuationist mm-hmm. point of view. Now, it's interesting. Schreiner and Storms have debated at ETS and uh, in the Gospel Coalition, right? So here you got two champions of the different positions. These are great books for our listeners to read. Mm-hmm. In terms of the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, we've got Graham Cole, He Who Gives Life. That's an excellent one. Uh, uh, Sir Clair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit. There's just uh, um, Michael Horton, Rediscovering uh, the Holy Spirit is exceptionally good. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of really good books uh, in the last 50 years on the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. So I guess, do you have any closing thoughts on just maybe how can our, our Protestant or our Baptist churches recover the the primacy and work of the Holy Spirit in their churches? What what can pastors do to encourage their, I guess, fellow members to think more about the Spirit and not neglect Him? So first, our churches need to become more self-consciously Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. That, that's where we need to start. Yeah. So our songs of praise to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not hymns that praise the Father, praise the Son, and then tell us, tell what we're going to do. Praise the Holy Spirit, right? Um, uh, Benediction at the end of the service, right? Uh, May the uh, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, an excellent way to send people off with an apostolic Trinitarian blessing. Baptism in the name of the triune God write sermons about the Trinity. Our people don't know the Trinity because we don't talk about it. We don't sing about it. We don't pray to God through the, in the name of the Son in step with the Spirit. And then uh, in terms of the Spirit, when, when our pastors get up there, we ask the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word to illumine the Word, to empower us as we preach so that we rightly understand the Bible and we apply it, the, the Spirit would soften our hearts so that we would, would apply it to our lives. Simple steps like that, Trinitarian worship, um, acknowledging the inspiration of the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit, asking for His illumination, all those would be simple steps that would be very easy to incorporate in our worship services mm-hmm. and in our discipleship schools, in our community groups. Let's talk about the Trinity. I did a two-hour a Zoom call with 40, 50 people from College Park in Indy last night, two hours on the Trinity. They mm-hmm. ate it up because yeah. they just don't get it. And yeah. then let's, uh, in our discipleship, let's talk about the Trinity. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. There's uh, some major steps that we can take. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, this is really helpful. So uh, I think all of our listeners uh, will have loved this episode. I've loved it. I've loved talking to you and learning from you on this topic. <laughs> I love it too. This is I, I live for this. It's great. Yeah, this, this, this <laughs> fun. So we encourage all of our listeners to check out Dr. Allison's book, obviously. Check out all these other resources. I mean, let's 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 do what we can to help recover the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our churches. Um, I think 
you know, a lot of us Baptists are, are afraid of the Holy Spirit just because of these excesses. And I don't think that's a good way to live our lives and to lead our churches. So I encourage you to get these resources, to think through it, to pray about it, um, to incorporate Trinitarian stuff in your worship services. Uh, that's, I mean, all just so awesome. So everybody's been listening. Uh, as, as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and professional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0.